everybody, it's He Yang. Roundtable is thrilled to launch the UniTalk Challenge: Rising Stars of Roundtable. If you like the show and enjoy our discussions, why not take the stage yourself? Calling all university students, both undergraduates and postgrads, to engage in an English discussion on a topic that ignites your passion. Record your discussion, which consists more than one person, and send it to us at ezfmroundtable at foxmail.com. You could be the next rising star of Roundtable. An incredible opportunity awaits, so seize the moment. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Yang. I'm joined by Li Yi in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, a few Chinese universities recently announced that research publication is no longer mandatory for their PhD students. Is it a good idea? And a quick browse of the smartphone market shows that small phones are becoming increasingly rare. All phone makers are going for the bigger, the better. But is that what consumers want? Where do you suppose all the good small phones have gone? Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. And if you have questions that you want us to answer on social issues, business, technology, or whatever moves your spirit, you can send those our way. There's a place to do it: ezfmroundtable at foxmail.com. Emails are fine, but voice memos are always better because we're a radio show after all. And now on Roundtable, as we continue today's discussion, in a departure from the conventional academic model. Several Chinese universities are dismantling the long-standing publish or perish norm for PhD students. Research publication, long considered essential, is no longer a mandatory requirement. A few Chinese universities have embraced this change. What prompts these institutions to make such a shift? Well, I think, as you said, we do see a few universities, and quite a lot of them are actually top-tier universities here in China. They are revising their regulations, saying that the research publication during the doctoral program is no longer a mandatory criterion for degree applications. For example, in 2019, Tsinghua University launched such policy, and following are Beihang University, East China Normal University, China University of Political science and law, Shanghai Jiao Tong University and Guangzhou、mm. University. So then here comes the question: Then how to evaluate a doctor's research if publication is no longer required? Well, these universities propose that the specific methods for assessing innovative achievements would be formulated by the degree evaluation committees of each school or discipline. So that means different disciplines can have very different standards as long as they are fitting. So. So as to respect the unique feature of each discipline. For example, some engineering schools at Shanghai Jiao Tong University have provided optional forms of achievements for engineering doctoral degrees. They could、um, show their capability using their awards in the field of science and technology, and industry standards, and how much patents they got,、mm. and also academic papers in other areas. Mm-hmm. So I think when talking about. 
publishing for PhD, I think we need to bear in mind that a doctoral can either be academic or professional. Sometimes, maybe for academic doctoral, it's highly theoretical and research focused. So, however, a professional doctoral could be really experience based, and、uh, they just very much gearing toward applying research to specific professional settings. So that's why some people are arguing that imposing a mandatory requirement for、uh, research publication on PhD is not really suitable. And also, when talking about the reason why they're setting such policy or revising such policy, some professors are saying that they are trying to encourage researchers to have more creative research, and instead of not only focusing on whether they could not publish their research, and they are trying to build a more positive and encouraging atmosphere in academia, especially.、Mm. So yeah, that is. Quite a thorough update on what's going on in the PhD publishing world, Josh. What's your reaction to this? And also, you've、um, had your experience in the academic world as well. What kind of impact do you think this might have on researchers, future PhD candidates, and also just the doctoral education in general? Well, I think there's going to be several effects. I mean, there's obviously A more diverse set of ways in which you can attain different、uh, rewards and merit that will allow you to get a PhD or a professional doctorate, which is which is good in some ways. But then there is obviously the danger that the market for PhDs, because there is a market there actually, just like with master's degrees,、um, becomes maybe oversaturated and it becomes. It could become too easy in certain places to get a PhD, which might take away some of the value from that qualification. I think this is something that、uh, people have often been concerned about, and definitely something that people have criticised master's degrees for. Given that many places now they used to be like two years in a lot of places, now you can get a master's degree in one year at a lot of universities,、um, and they're much easier to get on. Academically, as opposed to undergraduates, etc. So there is a danger there. But actually, personally, I understand this because I do think that there are some really valid criticisms regarding the massive emphasis that's put on publishing when it comes to completing a PhD.、Mm-hmm. Um, things like research bias. The, the idea of a PhD really is that you make a significant contribution to that field of research. And what does significant contribution mean? Well, that's very subjective, and we could have a whole conversation about that. But it basically means that you know you provide something new or original, or you contribute something new in this sense. And one of the problems with publishing in research articles is that there is, I think, a lot of the time, a pressure、um, that can lead to bias towards research that is more likely to. Be published, obviously,、mm-hmm. um, yielding positive, quote unquote, significant results,、um, and this can lead to publications that are biased or skewed. Right when really the ultimate focus of this of a PhD is to contribute something, contribute something new. Right.、Mm-hmm. So, I, and there's there's a whole load of other criticisms that I think are very valid, but this is one that stands out to me. Yeah, but also, don't you think, in a way, 
um, this is the educators and those who set the rules in the academic world kind of giving in to reality in the sense that, you know, we're in 2023 now mm. and to come up with groundbreaking new discoveries or worthwhile publishing results, it's going to be increasingly difficult. Yeah. And that's a challenge for established scholars as well as PhD students. And maybe in a way this is more like, okay, we'll look at this more realistically with such a huge number of graduates every year and uh, those who are lining up trying their best to collect their diplomas. And um, maybe, maybe we should just look at this in a more pragmatic way. That is publishing with useful and worthwhile results is not going to happen every day. And therefore, let's tweak the rules a bit just to fit the reality that we have in front of us today. Yeah. And actually, you know, in reality, just as you said, a lot of times, actually, whether you can or cannot publish your research depend on your supervisors, depend on your the field we are working in, and also depend on the discipline and or the issue or the topic you are researching on. It does not really solely depend on your capability, whether you're excellent enough. Uh, sometimes it just needs a lot of things to take into consideration to make a publication work. And Brandy, particularly, as you said, and now it has been increasingly challenging for researchers to really come up with a truly innovative research. And uh, a lot of times, if we only, say, pursue the publishing of the research, it could just make a lot of researchers, they are feeling pretty anxious. It mm. seems like if my research doesn't really direct to uh, publications, then what I'm doing is meaningless. Mm. Um, Although I think I'm already working on something that is meaningful, yet if I failed in this sector, then I can't really get my degree, then I can't really show my capability to the job market or from a very pragmatic point of view. Mm. So I think maybe that could just, uh, you know, cause extra stress yeah. for researchers, for yeah. PhD st students. Yeah, yeah, when we were doing research for this subject, unfortunately, we came across like this a whole slew of mm. uh, terms of PhD depression, mental health crisis, and certainly um, becoming an academic is a lot of work. And this is part of the world that they are living in. But they're is that criticism or worry that Josh alluded to earlier on, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say about this, Li Yi. That is, does the withdrawal of the publication requirement mean it's going to be easier or less challenging of a research environment for PhD students? And does that mean it'll be easier to get that degree and graduate? Well, I think the very original purpose might be, you know, trying to create a less challenging research environment for PhD students. However, I think in reality, when you're seeing 
there is suddenly no unified standard. Somehow, teachers and also PhD students and also for for the job market, they haven't really adapted to the new norm. Because when you look at some reports saying that certain doctoral student, they are still struggling with the pressure of publishing their research because although it is the Policy from the school, or it is the policy from the educational authority. They are trying to implement this new area. In reality, I think the school's assessment of research outputs is still very tightened, and the pressure for graduation is still on the shoulder of those. Kids, and also when you look at those people who are trying to enter like a job market, especially in certain industry. Despite of、uh, academia, I think the HR or the job market they're still considering publishing high quality papers, a very important standard for judging your achievements, for judging your academic performances. So that's why we do see certain complaints from the schools and also young students、mm. saying that although we are trying to. Abandon or abolish this regulation. We are still suffering from the huge academic pressure, and especially when it comes to finding a good job. Then, what is the unified or what is the very proper standard of judging or to make validation of talents? So、yeah. that is the still a question being remained. Yes, Josh, what's your read into you know this argument, and do you still see that? Huge significance of publishing, and because、uh, overall, you know, when you look at the educational institutions around the world, if you want to go down the route of academia, publishing has been key, and it still is the case. Yeah, absolutely, and it's the same in a lot of industries. It's not just in academia. I mean, publishing. In this sense, we use this word publishing when we talk about journal articles and academic things, but in many other Uh, industries as well, you are required to have some sort of resume.、Um, it may not be as standardized, but you need to have some sort of resume that requires you to have, you know, maybe in media to have broadcast something. Or if you work in banking, you have to prove that you have worked at several companies. And or sales, you have to have had a certain number of sales. I guess that people forget that PhDs at this point, what they're supposed to be is that you often. Have the ambition to be an academic if you do that. So it's quite different, I believe, from a, maybe a master's degree. You know, if you go, if you plan to do this, it's no small feat. It usually takes three to seven years. You know, it can, it can, it depends on the discipline. And if you do that, then presumably you're going to make an effort to work in that industry, whatever it is you're doing. And in order to do that, universities for a long time and. In a lot of subjects, this means working at a university or working for a research institute or something like this, and they've always required publications. That's part and parcel of the university. So remember that when you do a PhD, a lot of the time PhD students do work at the university as well, and in order to do that, they have to contribute to the university's body of work, and the universities are always actively publishing. So publishing isn't some abstract random thing. 
that's mm -hmm. just happening here. It's part and parcel of that institution and the way it works. Yes, and the number of students awarded PhDs each year is expanding in a number of countries, and there's an ongoing conversation about reevaluating and broadening the criteria for assessing research impact and the contribution of PhD students. So, in what ways do you think this evaluation process can be improved? Well, I think maybe we can try to implement a more diversified way of validating PhDs by looking at their diverse research outputs instead of solely relying on traditional journal publications. I think universities and research institutions can consider like a broader range of research outputs, for example, their participation in very important conference industry or in, in this discipline and their contributions to more open access platforms and their development of software or tools, um, meaning their practical skills and also other forms of scholarly communication could also be taken into consideration. And uh, maybe also considering how much contribution they are making to interdisciplinary research, because that matters a lot for academia and also for evaluating your skills and capability. So I think, yeah, I think universities and educational institutions, they can still work to say perfect this mm -hmm. process of assessing uh, PhDs and also trying to put this rat race a little bit less competitive, I think. Well, I think that this is a difficult thing to answer because I think that different courses and different disciplines really have different necessities and they each need to be looked at on their individual merit and how they can best, you know, evaluate the students and and work out the contribution that they've made. And I do think that there are certain disciplines that don't require such a focus on publishing and things like this. There are more practical courses but I still think that publishing in some degree, like getting something out there, creating something or contributing to something tangible uh, is important. Mm -hmm. So it, it really depends uh, on, on the discipline. But I do think that it's important that in a PhD, the students have to be contributing something in some way. Yeah. And we seem to take it for granted that if you put in all those years, then something should come out of it. Mm. But... I don't really want to bring this up, but the crude and cold truth is that's not always the case. Yeah. So it is, you guys mentioned three to seven years at least. That's the range of numbers of years one puts into getting a PhD. So it's a lot of investment and uh, academia is a rigorous pursuit and um you know, as long as you go in sort of prepared in that sense, then um, good luck to you. Coming up next, smartphones in 2023 seem to be all about big. But where did all the awesome small phones go? And what about the future? Stay tuned. Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about current events in China from different perspectives? Then tune in to Roundtable. East meets West, and understanding is the goal. 
It's the hour of roundtable with myself, He Yang. I'm joined by Li in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. The trend gone is the days of the BlackBerry keyboard phone and the Nokia flip phone that easily slid into your back pocket. Today, phones are just bigger, and Apple recently discontinued the iPhone Mini, the last of its distinctly small devices on the market. And have small smartphones simply disappeared in the market? And should we pour one out, so to speak, for the small phones? Well, I think when you look at new models being manufactured by phone makers in recent years, you seldom see actually small, small size phones actually. And also when you look at those special design like pocket phone being very popular on the market, they are not really that small actually. Although you can just put them in your pocket, but when you really open it, it's really huge and big as well. Yeah. So even I think phone manufacturers, they are somehow like already stopped to to put up new updates on the smaller phone devices. So I think one major reason is that I think consumers in modern times, they have much more demanding expectations from their phones. It's not only a device that helps them to make phone calls or send messages, they also use it to maybe watch videos, to play games, and they want it to be a major device that they can count on during work scenarios. So they just need a larger battery as well. Mm -hmm. So all of these are like contributing to the decision of phone makers to manufacture bigger phones, I think. Mm. So Josh, do you think that it's just assume that people want bigger phones with big and beautiful screens? Why aren't companies making small phones anymore? And may I just bring back a recent piece of history in around June 2010, when the first iPhone 4 was unveiled. That was a huge thing. And the iPhone 4 is so much smaller than the iPhone 15 Pro Max today. So and this is just one of the examples of what, you know, many phone makers are doing in the uh, smartphone world. So Josh, why is the question I have for you? Sure. Well, I think that as we have seen, it's just changing before our eyes at a pace that we can't even comprehend, I think, as humans. But the power, I don't think anybody could have imagined the power that we would have been able to wield in our hands with our smartphones. And I think that initially with the mobile phone, the reason that size was always emphasized so much was because its purpose its whole purpose was to be a phone, to talk on the phone, not even to text. And so the market and manufacturers were constantly pushing to reduce the size because of course, the weight and size of the thing was a nuisance. And that was the main focus. But then when the smartphone came out, first texting where you needed a screen, and then smartphones came out where you were then able to watch videos. And now it's to the point where our phone can literally, it's a powerful computer in our hands. And so this is why there was that shift, I believe, um, from there being a massive focus on size. And these days, you know, there's only, I think that there's a limit to how small a screen can be before it kind of becomes a nuisance to us when we're trying to watch something or Mm -hmm. watch, 
you know, a series or game or something like that. And if you put most smartphones in your hand, they're also purposely weighted and sized in order to fit between two hands and you be able to use both your thumbs, whether it's for gaming or holding it and watching it, watching a TV series or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think that now there's like a real sort of limit between sizes that we see, right? They all seem to be slightly bigger or slightly smaller than one another. And I guess that seems to be the perfect size for us humans when we travel. I guess it's naturally evolved to be this shape. I, however, would like to question whether it's natural or not. And also if this is even sure. what we want, because it seems mm. like, well, I'm a woman, obviously, and I have average sized hands. If I'm a man, maybe that would be a better specimen for this uh, discussion in that sense. But what I'm trying to say here is for most folks to grab your, well, what's pretty standard these days of the size of a iPhone 15 Pro Max as such, you can't do your job whatever you're working on your phone for, um, with one hand. Mm. So that's not convenient. And also, in the last couple of years, when the fashion handbag trend was mini bags, it was impossible to put any of your smartphone options available out there in the market into your bag and um, we seem to yes, and for guys, it's impossible to put your average size phone these days into your back pocket and and that's creating nuisance um so i'm wondering you know along the way what happened how did we get here and there's an article in the verge which the journalist went on an investigation on how did we get here and it's really interesting he mentioned that there wasn't really a time period when there where they said we're going to bring out a flagship keyboard phone and a flagship touchscreen phone and let consumers choose. But the phone makers pretty much just migrate all the way to the big screen phones. Yes, so it's difficult to say whether it was the consumers who wanted it or it was just the phone makers who were afraid of losses and they were quick to jump on that trend and everybody went in and therefore cemented that trend and sometimes i do wonder do these smartphones need to be that big but there aren't even the um updated super sleek and really great small smartphone options out there anymore? Or am I the only one that's scratching my head a little bit here? Or are you guys pretty all right with um, the options available these days? Well, I think it's quite interesting to look at whether it is because consumers want bigger phones or manufacturers, they are simply giving that options, like solely option to consumers. But I think a major thing is that people are getting more addictive to phones than before. And especially when it comes to entertainment, we are using phones replacing TV or replacing tablets even. And we're super reliable on phones to offer us entertainment, especially when it comes to watching movies and TVs. In this case, you really want your device <laughs> to be bigger instead of like a smaller device that you can easily navigate. So Josh, I wonder if you realize, if you feel that, you know, my question here is a little bit 
quixotic that it's always going to be the bigger the better we want more pixels and a bigger screen and i don't care if i have to use two hands to handle it i don't think that there's anything too concerning about it other than as was just mentioned i think that probably these large phones are representative of an increasing addiction to mobile phones and how these phones are increasingly pervasive in our lives and we uh, have to use them for so many different things and the amount of screen time that we're having obviously has probably contributed to the investment in i mean it's a bit of a vicious circle but (laughs) maybe one of the reasons why big phones are still a thing or they're getting bigger or whatever so i think that that's the only sort of vicious side to it that i can see um i mean i personally i i wish my phone was smaller Mm -hmm. i am i'm not going to say what model i have but you can probably guess which one it is i am um a sucker for that market and uh it is a size i I, you know i've I've bought into all of their products and i really wish that i I could have a smaller version of it yeah um, just as good myself using it yeah that we can agree on yeah because um yeah i would like um for all of us if i may i can't represent you but this is just what i wish less time on the phone that's probably better for everybody and uh also if that can just fit in my pocket or in my handbag easily that's kind of useful thank you so much lee Yi and josh for joining the discussion and thank you for tuning in you can always find us on apple podcast at roundtable china i'm he young we'll see you next time